Hey everyone, welcome to episode 92 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey Collins. What's up Chris? You ready to do a normal show this week? Uh, Yes, yes I am. (laughs) (laughs) Very exciting, we get to talk about actual magic being played. Yep, yep. Uh, Maybe it'll take like an hour, hour 15 minutes, something like that, instead of... (laughs) <laughs> it's not a marathon it's just you know continually for two whole episodes Look, yeah. i like recording with you but <laughs> fair yeah a lot, a lot to talk about this week yeah pro tour this past weekend yep yep and the pro tour came with probably uh, plenty of, of topics that we're gonna hit yeah so. some although honestly it was like a kind of comfortingly boring pro tour yes overall right yeah or mythic championship gotta get better about oh, that. oh right yeah i mean i i keep doing it too so we'll we'll do our best to refer to it as a mythic championship we'll try <laughs> no promises <laughs> so uh yeah i mean mc london it was modern yep uh it implemented the new london mulligan rule yep which from what i hear was a pretty good success so it's interesting to talk about i do think that it's pretty clear that the mulligan rule doesn't bust modern wide open or anything like that yeah yeah i do think that having it having the experiment done at the same time as they decided okay we need to do open deck lists to make things fair for everybody because they were using cardboard live Mm -hmm. and you know if they didn't then a bunch of people's deck lists would just be out there when not when other people's weren't um so they did open deck lists after round four everyone got their opponent's starting 60 and then a list of the cards that were in their sideboard but without uh specific numbers of sideboard cards so there's a little bit of obfuscation there but i do think that it introduced too many variables to use this as a particularly scientific test true because one of the things we noticed when we were playing I know you've you've been playing standard on Magic Online. I have, I have been playing a lot of standard <laughs> so, this week so on Magic some, Online. So some London Mulligan standard, which yeah, yeah. hopefully becomes relevant at some point. I, I'm hoping so. But, you know, one thing that, that I noticed while playing it just with Cube mm-hmm. is that the more, like, responsive your deck is, the yeah. harder it is to mulligan, especially mm-hmm. when you don't know what your opponent is playing. Right. Uh, one of the concerns about the London Mulligan is it makes assertive linear decks... It gives them a, a, a more powerful boost than other decks get. And that may have been mitigated by, you know, all the people playing Jund-style decks or blue-white control knowing how to mulligan with their deck from the very beginning of the match. Which yes. you don't get in a normal tournament. Right, right. And honestly is a, a massive benefit in terms of being able to mulligan better. Right. Is that, you know, that's why people scout is just almost just for the, you know, you're in the dark first mulligan decisions. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that definitely, I'm sure that, you know, that had a pretty big impact on how people were able to mulligan over the tournament. Right, and my concern is that it, you know, has an opposing effect to the London mulligan. Sure. Because knowing your opponent's deck list... Mm-hmm. Helps you a lot more when you're playing blue white control than when you're playing Tron. Right. So, yeah. but the London Mulligan, we believe, helps Tron a lot more than it helps blue white control. So, if these two things are butting heads and like almost canceling each other out. Yeah. Did we learn anything? It, it's hard to know. We don't yeah. know how much this confounded the experiments. Yeah, for sure. 
That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, so definitely, like, the empirical data that we received from the, the, the event is probably a little skewed in one way or another. Yeah. But from what I've heard, just kind of like the general buzz is on, mm-hmm. you know, social media and everything, the players liked it a lot. Yeah. I don't think that I heard any sort of, like, negative reviews of, like, oh, this mulligan, you know, it was bad or it didn't make any <laughs> sense or, like, any of that. Everybody was pretty pleased with it for the most part. And that wasn't just from the tournament itself. Mm-hmm. That was also from testing and stuff. People yeah. were... Nobody busted the format. Nobody came with a broken Vengevine deck or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. That relied or right. you know, serum powder decks did not dominate this Pro Tour. Yeah. So Which is, you know, definitely a good sign. Yeah. I mean a lot of people did play Tron. Yes. Tron I, Tron was the most popular deck um at the tournament, despite not quite being the most popular deck like leading into the tournament. Mm-hmm. And we see that happen at Pro Tours every once in a while, kind of no matter what, but uh, it was. I think that that likely was influenced a little bit by the mulligan rule. Yeah, and I, I, I think it definitely was. Uh, interesting as well. I wonder how much of that... I don't know how much credence to give this concept, but there's this sort of idea that, oh, pro players play so much standard and limited, and so when it comes time for a modern pro tour, they're not as experienced as at modern, so they want to pick up a deck that doesn't require, you know, maybe the huge depth of knowledge of the format that, like, a Death Shadow deck sure. would require or something like that. And Tron, you know, if, if you told somebody, if somebody came up to you and was like, I'm a pretty good Magic player, I want to play Modern, I want to beat people at it, mm-hmm. I don't have time to learn every in and out of the format, Yeah, like, Tron is the easiest suggestion for that, you do what your deck does. But, like, these players are really good and have been playing for a... <laughs> very long time for yeah. the most part right yeah and that's kind of the thing i was gonna say is that you know if you're good enough to to be on the pro tour it's so likely that you've been just playing magic long enough mm-hmm. to have been reasonably exposed to the modern format yeah i don't know how many of the you know people who qualified for the pro tour like maybe a couple people who qualified through because you always hear about like oh you know i i only play legacy ever and i like won a legacy pptq or a, like a, a qualifier of yeah. some sort um, and then I have to learn standard for the first time. Like, but I don't. I don't actually know if it goes as far in the other direction, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of interesting. Just because, yeah, everybody who's playing on the pro tour generally has enough, just like you know, years in the game. Yeah, you have to in order to get that good to have played in a couple of modern grand prix or something. Yeah, and I mean, it's silly to suggest, you know, like Matt Nass is like maybe the best modern player in the world. Like, yeah, of course. <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't. I, I just don't totally buy this argument. So, yeah, yeah. But yeah, interesting that Tron was such a heavily favored choice. Like if we scroll down a little bit and look at mm-hmm. you know this metagame breakdown, Tron with a solid like almost fifteen percent of the field, which is very high for a modern tournament. It is. It um, really is. Yeah. And and beating out is it Phoenix, which we've seen be twenty-ish percent of the field is now down to about twelve. Yeah. Yeah, Phoenix, ironically, I think got the the most, like, the shortest stick from the Mulligan rule. Because mm-hmm. the Phoenix deck was just, like, the power that it got was its consistency. Right. It was the by far the most consistent deck in Modern, just because your deck was all cantrips. But I now, just, now all never, of... You just yeah. mulligan so rarely with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but now all of the decks in Modern get to be the consistent deck. Mm-hmm. That's just what this Mulligan rule does. Yep. And honestly, I, I like that. I, you know, I'm always a proponent of variance reducers in Magic, and I think that this is one. Right. So. I mean, to a certain point. We don't want to be playing actual chess 
against each other. You know, we want a little bit of that, like, what's on the top of my deck feeling. Yeah, I know. That's I understand. Important. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> but I personally, I like it when it goes further in that direction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and for watching a pro tour, mm-hmm. you know, you want more games to be decided by the skill of the players yeah. than by the order their cards come in. Yeah, for sure. So pretty cool. Uh because all the deck lists were open and stuff, and I don't know how much of this was put together by actual wizards, not by wizards of the coast, not like actual wizards. Um, I was hoping that it was going to be actual wizards. That <laughs> math wizards. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but so we have the win rate for each of the decks in the tournament, which is a pretty interesting statistic to look at. So we look yeah. at Tron, the most heavily played deck, actually had a sub 50% win rate. Yeah. It is tough to be the most played deck in the room and also have a very high... Right. win rate most yeah. of the time and from what i found just you know i don't have any math to back this up um but it's just kind of through looking at a lot of these kinds of data sheets uh the the more your deck rises to the top of the popularity mm-hmm. the more your win rate tends towards 50 yeah and you know the fact that tron is sub 50 i think is definitely telling mm-hmm. Looking at Tron and Is It Phoenix and Humans and all of those decks that were like significant percentages of the metagame and comparing their win rates to, you know, Ad Nauseum had like a a 61.7% win rate, but the sample size is much lower. So it's kind of hard to. Yeah, with only eight players playing the deck. Yeah. However, when Tron is 15% of the room, yeah, you don't hate being on. Ad oh Nauseum. no, I think honestly, I think the Ad Nauseum was probably a great choice yeah. for for this tournament. It like, looks like it. You, oh. you know, your matchup against Tron is great. Uh, Phoenix is probably also decent. I like, think it's pretty good. The Phoenix decks just kind of need to be prepared for Ad Nauseum if they're going to want to beat it, and I don't think that it was on many of the Phoenix players' radar. Well, and I do think that the generally the way that Phoenix beats decks like this, I I, I would categorize it similarly to Amulet Titan, where it's generally faster than phoenix at ending the game Mm -hmm. but its fail rate is what is like giving it most of its losses right Um, because phoenix is going to say you need to kill me by turn four really yes and if you don't do that i'm going to kill you back yeah um and so when you don't do that you die and that's mostly where phoenix is coming in and and getting its win percentage against a deck like Ad Nauseam that is favored against it, but, you know, has cards like Pentad Prism and stuff in the deck. Yeah. But, and, you know, and Phoenix is just going to get you dead on turn four a, a good percentage of the time. Right. So. And almost guaranteed to do it on turn five. Right. So. Yeah. yeah, pretty close. <laughs> pretty pretty close. Yeah. Um, definitely, you know, this this top of the metagame is actually, like, pretty sweet. Tron, is it Phoenix, Humans, White, Blue, Control, mm-hmm. Dredge, in yep. that order. Right. You know, we've got the classic... We got big mana, cantrip deck, aggro deck, control deck, graveyard deck. Um, no artifact deck until we get down a few more, but this is like yeah. a pretty, you know, these are the modern decks. These are the powerful right. things people do in modern mm-hmm. in sizable percentage. Like we're, we've actually kind of got a metagame here. Yeah. It's kind of cool. No, for sure. And a few things about this kind of like the win rate, win rate uh, breakdown that pop out to me are the win rates of humans and of hardened skills. Mm-hmm. Those, so humans had a 54.3% win rate, which is definitely one of the higher win rates. Yeah, that's very good. Um, And I, you know, human, there were a couple of people talking about humans for this tournament, um, kind of leading into it, but I don't think it was like a huge, like, you know, oh, there's going to be a bunch of humans at this event. Definitely not like the noise around Um, Tron and Dredge. Yeah, it seemed like everybody was really focused on a lot of other archetypes, Mm -hmm. which 
in my mind sounds like it allowed humans to kind of punch through in that way where humans is kind of has that element of if it's unchecked it's going to be a very very strong choice yep um so you know i think that that was definitely a factor that helped out the archetype going into this tournament yep um and then also the other one is hardened scales at 56 percent win rate yeah um hardened scales has been putting up a lot of like secret results lately it's like it like won a grand prix recently it you know it has like had other results here and there um but another deck that just like not a lot of people were talking about Mm -hmm. um it is surprising to me that it did so well given its very rough matchups against both phoenix and white blue control which Mm -hmm. are both in the top of the metagame true but maybe it's just like, it does beat up on people doing kind of random stuff a lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is really hard to beat it with nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then, you know, one of the other things that it has going for it is that I think it's pretty favored against humans yeah. and uh, has really good game against some of the other normal archetypes. Like, you can, you know, you can definitely compete against Tron and Dredge. So Yeah, it. I do think Dredge tends to be... My understanding is that Dredge tends to be pretty bad for it. Just they manage to put on a clock that is kind of hard to deal with and then conflagrate either to kill guys or or burn out the, the hardened scales player. Seems to put them ahead. Yeah. I'm no expert on that matchup, though, by any means. Just people who play those decks have told me that that dredge is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have nut draws that let you keep up with anything. Yeah. Especially anything sure. creature-based. Yeah. Um, but certainly, you know, like stuff like Ad Nauseum, <laughs> you have Ink Moth Nexus in your deck, so uh, yeah, I mean, you, you tend to just win that matchup. It, it definitely feels good when you can when you can infect them out, and they're they're trying to avoid that in one way or another. Yep, yep, yep. But yeah, generally, the the fear is, oh god, Tron can go to four and still crush you, like regularly. Right. It's got a forty seven point seven percent win rate in this tournament. Yeah. And even if the knowing that my opponent is on Tron from before game one impacts that. <laughs> I can't imagine it impacts it like a huge percentage to which, you know, if that impacted it, like gave Tron's opponents 8% more wins mm-hmm. or, you know, eight more percentage points, then yeah. Tron has a 56% win rate in a normal tournament. Right. That's not that insane. We have decks in this tournament with a 56% win rate. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, it definitely makes me feel pretty good about where Modern's at right now in yeah. terms of, you know, it's it doesn't feel like it's dominated by any one thing. Nope. You know, there are even like a few kind of like sweet alternative options that you can have if you don't want to play one of the top five decks, quote unquote. Right, so, right. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty happy with these results. And, and kind of what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast was just like... Uh, a nice, you know, easygoing uh, mythic championship <laughs> from that standpoint, where like there was no like huge breakout deck or mm-hmm. anything. It was just like everybody was playing the format that we know pretty well. Yep. Yeah. Although they did play one format that we don't know very well right. at all. Um, it was kind of weird watching a pro tour where they were drafting a set that just had never, you know, I've only seen these cards on arena before. So that was interesting. It was definitely kind of, and I know that draft is the sort of black sheep of the Pro Tour coverage. (laughs) Well, right. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people don't like watching it at all, Mm -hmm. but I do like watching it quite a bit. Yeah. But because this was a format that I haven't played, Mm -hmm. I I really like watching people play a format that I've invested a bunch of time in and feel like I understand well. Yeah. And this was... I kind of tuned out. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I felt the same. I I didn't watch all of the the draft coverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did watch the actual drafts because I I kind of do enjoy watching somebody draft when I don't know much yeah. about the draft format. I think that's kind of interesting because I kind of get to be surprised at like certain decisions that they make, mm-hmm. and it's pretty informative for like you know my instincts tells me that it, they would want to go with this, and then they pick something else because they sure. probably have a better understanding of what's going on, and that can teach you certain things. But but yeah, the, the actual gameplay and stuff. It was harder for me to be invested in that. So yep. that's interesting, kind of like moving forward. And uh, I'm sure they'll be looking at kind of like the the viewership numbers for that and to see whether or not it was a bigger hit or not. But I could be wrong on this, but I suspect that the reason we had a pre-release Mythic Championship was just because the set release was scheduled way ahead of time, well before the like changes to... Yeah. Right. The pro tour happened. Yeah. It doesn't sound like this is going to be something that is going to be consistent moving forward. Yeah. yeah. I don't think this was on purpose. Right. I think it was just how things worked out. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Uh, honestly, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, we do have to talk about one not very exciting thing. Yuya Watanabe, after locking up top eight with an ID in the last round. Yeah, he was X3 and yeah. drawing in the last round. And drawing in. Mm-hmm. Uh, got deck checked. And the judges determined that his sleeves had been marked in such a way that they could not conclude that it was unintentional. He was playing Tron. It looked like all of the Tron lands were marked, mostly in a way that specific Tron lands had similar marks to each other. Looked like they had some bent corners and like four, you know, one set of Tron lands had all the same corner bent. Another set, except for like one, had a different corner bent. And the judges ultimately concluded that they had to believe it was intentional. They DQ'd Watanabe from the tournament. And now, of course, his future in the MPL is is pretty uncertain. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely crazy news. When, you know, I was kind of watching the coverage a little bit. And when I heard about that, I was pretty devastated, it's honestly. kind of dumbfounding. You know, Yuya, for a lot of people, and uh, this was definitely shown through this kind of, like, unfolding on, you know, mm-hmm. through the, the Twitter sphere of magic and all that stuff, is that uh, Yuya was one, one of the players that uh, pretty much everybody looked up to in pretty high regard. Yep. So when they made the announcement of Yuya's been disqualified from the tournament for marked cards... That's that's When he was locked for top eight. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, so condemning, even though we didn't have any of the facts at the time that he's just one of those players who you would expect would get the respect from the judges, at least, to have to be pretty certain to, right. you know, actually go through with the disqualification. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you know, the the photo of his deck is now online and viewable, and I was taking a look at it. And it's, it is true that, you know, when you look at all the Urza lands next to the entire deck, about, you know, it looks like about, you know, 80% of his... Urza lands are have a marked corner, and zero percent of the rest of the deck has a marked corner. Right, which is pretty crazy. So, as far as innocent explanations go, it could be something having to do with tutoring Tron lands out of the deck and the mm-hmm. way that he snaps them down into play or something like that. Right. But according to Yuya, he had only played with those sleeves for like two rounds, so it would need to be something very specific, and it's hard. I don't know. I, I mean, we will probably never 100% know the truth. Yeah. Barney. Yuya did make a statement on Twitter. Yep. 
the bottom line of the statement was essentially I had no idea what was going on. Mm-hmm. They called me aside after deck check and they told me I was getting disqualified and it took me a long time to recover from that and, and make a statement. But I, he just essentially said that he had no knowledge of anything right. about what was going on. Which, you know, <laughs> doesn't really tell us much either because that seems like that statement was going to come out no matter what from Yuya. The only way um, that we will ever know exactly what happened is if he comes out and says okay yeah i did mark these cards right yeah that's that (laughs) seems unlikely to happen yeah either way Mm -hmm. my my kind of thing about it is that it's just not a zero percent chance that this happened on accident Mm -hmm. and that's what makes me feel weird about the whole situation is that you know yes it's only the urzatron lands that have been marked in this way yeah but also it that in and of it the the lands themselves are a unique element of the deck right they're a different game piece from the other right cards yeah i mean you know they're your lands so you might be handling them differently than your other cards right you tap Um, your tron lands like in a a lot of times like mm -hmm. you cast karn by picking up your three tron lands the same way every time and tapping them i have no idea right if that was a way that would make like yeah. these marks are it, and Yuya, it doesn't look great but yuya was on camera a significant portion of this pro tour mm-hmm. so i'm i hope that somebody who is doing the kind of the next level of investigation goes through and watches how he handles his cards yeah because um, this when is he's a, on camera this is a cheat that makes a difference in like, the situations I see this making a difference in would be determining whether or not to keep a hand because you can see if there's a Tron land, like, on top or next. Well, and so I was I was playing a good bit of Tron on Magic Online uh, this past weekend. Yeah. And I, you know, I was thinking about it and I did notice that there were a, a majority of, like, the close hands that Just I need saw a Tron land. Were, were entirely contingent on whether or not I had a Tron land on top right. of the deck. And a lot of times it's like... As long as this is one of, you know, eight Tron, like like right. I have a I have a mine. As long as yeah. I draw a tower or a power plant, right. I can tutor up the third one and I'll I'll win. Yeah, yeah. Then I mean the number of like one one Tron land, one sphere, and then uh, Sylvan's crying. Yeah, you you get a ton of those hands. It's like a third of the hands that you draw in my mind. If if you can turn those into a guaranteed no or guaranteed yes on Mulligan, just based on you know the cheat here, it. That's really that's really condemning in my mind as well, right. because you know it, that in and of itself makes a huge difference just in the mulligan process. Because um, you don't get to scry anymore; it's it's like just what's on top of your yep. deck. Yep. Which does feel really weird. You don't get to go to six and be like, "All right, well, it's a one line hand on the draw, but I've got the scry, so I'm going to get like you." That's what you got. You know, right. you don't. Interestingly, uh, Sam Pardee was saying that with the London Mulligan rule, he doesn't believe that Tron should keep a six that plays a non-Tron land on turn two. Okay. Um, I could totally buy that. So, I, you know, and, and that doesn't really mean anything here because, you know, the thing that we would be investigating would be, like, asking Yuya's opponents, like, what kinds of hands it seemed like Yuya was keeping and, <laughs> sure. and then what Yuya's mulliganing philosophy really was. Like, this yeah. is all, like, stuff we can't I mean, unpack. you know, in order to really increase the certainty, I think that, you you know, you would have just had to bird Yuya right. for a good bit of it. And, you know, we do have the camera matches, but... Um, and it also, based on Yuya's statement, it sounded like he got deck-checked once, they said it was fine, mm-hmm. they let him play another round, 
and then they deck checked him again and got him yeah. on the disqualification. So it might be true that they, the judges saw something that looked suspicious and mm-hmm. kind of like con- confirmed some suspicions that they might have had. And the thing that would have been really damning to me is that at some point Yuya made some play with suboptimal sequencing because with every yeah. combination of bobbles and tutors and or, you know bobbles sylvan scryings uh maps there's a specific order that you play them in to right. optimize your percentage chance of getting tron and every tron player knows those sequences. Right. it's like it's pretty solved at this point in my mind but if you know there's a tron land on top right it becomes not right to crack this expedition map right now you sure. want to crack your bobble first yeah, yeah. even though maybe that wasn't correct for whatever reason yeah if that stuff was happening then that that that's the second way that having these cards marked benefits you besides mulligan decisions yeah yeah yeah. if you can change your sequencing a little bit to draw an extra tron land right but that is way more transparent so if that ever came up and if anybody noticed him doing that then that would be particularly damning to me overall it is very disappointing yuya was to me, one of the good guys of the game, I thought. I I definitely looked up to him, too. I thought, I mean, he is a tremendous player, Mm -hmm. but if he was cheating, that's extremely, extremely disappointing. Right. And, you know, I don't believe that anybody who we know has cheated belongs in the MPL. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, being in the MPL is such a huge privilege Mm -hmm. that... I agree with that statement. I think that if you have cheated, then you're just... You, you can't know. be a representative of the game yeah. in this way. Right. But to be fair, isn't isn't Carval, Marcio Carvalho in... Is he in the MPL? And he is... You know, we're pretty convinced that he has cheated in the past. So. Oh, yeah. He definitely has cheated in the past. But... Right. He earned his way back in... Mm-hmm. And he he is also very clearly one of the best players in the game. Right. He had a lot you of know. success on Magic Online, which is a you know, a good place to have success right. in terms of <laughs> But I mean also no matter how good you are, right. being good doesn't make up for mm-hmm. cheating. Like right. like we know that he can be winning these tournaments without having to cheat. Right. So like that's that's what that means to us. Right. But no amount of being super good like yes, we want good players in our Mythic Championships. But that doesn't make it... That doesn't mean that they get to be a representative of the game. Yeah. Just being good at the game. Just being good isn't enough. Right. Um, Right. It's much less important than... I mean, the integrity of the game is very important. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so so maybe what this would mean is that Yuya can't be in the NPL this season, but doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to get a lifetime ban because that hasn't been the philosophy in the past. I don't know. We'll see how this... We'll see how this all shakes out. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's likely true that we'll just never really know for sure. Yep. But it is going to be interesting to see kind of like what decisions get made in terms of Yuya's position. Yeah. I mean, it's all precedent setting at this point because we've yeah. never had an MPL before. So right. yeah, every decision they make kind of is predictive of what they will do in the future then. So mm-hmm. it's all yeah. new. And I'm sure that, you know, somewhere in their contracts, there is a, you know, good behavior clause that they could easily I'm sure. utilize here. So. Yep. And I believe that this is probably not the first time that that's been used in this season right. of the MPL. It's yep. been a wild ride for the first year of the MPL. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that Hall of Fame class is not looking so great. Anymore. No, that's, that, yeah, that's very weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and of course we're talking about Owen. Yeah. And I I do want to say one thing about Owen. Okay. Which is... 
that we are not owed an explanation here. No. Um, yeah. Especially because it seems likely that the behavior that led to his removal was some sort of sexually predatory behavior. Right. Or, and what that means is there was somebody who was a victim of this behavior. Right. So saying that Wizards owes us an explanation of what's happening is completely disrespecting the privacy and the autonomy of the people who were hurt by whatever happened here. Right. For, from the public's perspective, kind of all of, that we need to know is that Owen's no longer in the MPL. He violated some terms right. of his agreement with Wizards, yeah. and they've decided that he can't be in the MPL. Yeah. And uh, curiosity is a natural reaction to this sort of thing, and I don't blame anyone for wanting to know. Yeah. But demanding to know, I believe, right. is out of line. Yeah. I agree with that. For sure. All right. But yeah. <laughs> so, so for some lighter stuff. <laughs> um, we have been playing some standard. Standard. Week zero standard. Yeah. Transition over to some standard talk. So this weekend is Richmond. Yep. I'm going. I'm going. You're going. I'm pumped. I've been playing a lot of standard. Me too. Preparing for this tournament. I'm, and the caveat for me, though, is that I've been playing all of my standard on Magic Online. Right. Which is has the London Mulligan rule still. In every format. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in all formats. So I'm kind of like crossing my fingers that they make some announcement like tomorrow. <laughs> and they're like, we love the London Mulligan rule. It's just in effect immediately. <laughs> I Very unlikely to happen, I'm going to go on record and say I don't think that that is going to happen. I think that we missed the window on that. Because if it was going to happen, I think it would have happened yesterday, which yep. would be Monday. And if it does happen, I believe i have to switch my deck to either mono red or maybe nexus of fate um yeah i was thinking mono red or mono white yeah that's true i mean i'm not that i'm gonna not play an assertive deck week one of standard yeah anyways yeah, yeah. right i'm not not trying to not hopping my... on the esper control train <laughs> shout outs to jonathan rossum all right so esper control week one my last match against esper control post board my opponent moment of craving my Lanoir Elves, mm -hmm. Dovin's Vetoed My Planeswalker, mm -hmm. Mortified My Experimental Frenzy, mm -hmm. and then Absorbed My Domri Raid, Okay, which is a card that makes most of my spells uncounterable. Right. So I don't know what boarding philosophies are <laughs> with Esper, right. especially in an unknown format. But um, you can just draw the answers to your opponent's cards, and then it feels like, from the opponent's side... You're on top of the world? It feels, yeah, yeah. It feels really bad when that happens to you. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, Esper Control is very powerful. Yeah. I am not excited about trying to come with the right 75 to this tournament mm -hmm. with a deck like that. No. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, traditionally, for Week 1 Standard... Uh, the decks that are going to be fundamentally more powerful just based on the fact that the the reactive decks need to be tuned to a specific metagame, mm -hmm. and it has it is much harder to do that when new metagames are popping up. Yep. Uh, I will say, however, that it feels like the high-volume standard that people get to play online these days yep. might be changing that up a little bit. Helps settle things. Um, right, I do feel like I have a pretty good idea of... At least the decks that are going to show up, yeah. if not the exact, you know, percentages of the meta that that they're going to be. Agreed. Right. And, and it's Tuesday. Right. You know, so that's <laughs> we're moving fast. <laughs> and where we are right now in standard is very likely not where we're going to end up being. Mm -hmm. um, you know, come Richmond. So 
True. And these are, we are in a pretty mature standard format. We have a lot of sets. Mm-hmm. Um, there are powerful cards in War of the Spark, but, you know, like last season's decks are very tuned and very powerful. And it, it is kind of hard for completely new stuff to break in. Uh, I know the mono red deck that you're playing has no new cards in it. Yeah, th- th- I've just been jamming back the, pretty the, much pretty much the old uh, 18 land mono red version that I know that, that you love. That deck is only like two weeks <laughs> old or something. That's the the Lucas Feely yeah 18 land mono red right right. Um, well, yeah, and um, but has no new cards. It's just all the same old stuff. Yep, and it is great. Um, I wonder if it's great because you've been playing with the London Mulligan rule. I wonder how much of a difference that does make for that deck. It, it I'm sure it makes a non-zero amount. And because I was actually just talking to Zan about that today, mm-hmm. is that he feels that so you know, kind of talking about the the top decks right now of standard. Uh, we've got Nexus of Fate. Yep. A lot of people are on it. A lot of people think it's really strong. Yeah. Um, We're talking about Nexus of Fate today yeah, for right. sure. Additionally, uh, the the other kind of like top archetypes that I've been playing against a lot on Magic Online, mm-hmm. Mono White is pretty popular. Yep, Mono Red is pretty popular. Uh, there are some just kind of like the the same old uh, Explore Green Black variants, right? Um, Which don't need blue anymore necessarily right and i think the blue is actually a significantly less popular option we're not seeing a bunch of sultai we right. are seeing a bunch of Golgari. just you know pure Golgari. Yeah. and i think that they do get a lot of benefit from that so blast zone, blast right you get to play blast zone yeah blast zone is very powerful yep it's just a really strong card it's going to make a significant impact in standard yep um and that lily on the top end is just very very nice it does a yep. lot of what the deck wants to do right um and the only thing honestly the only place you're losing out on is against an opponent who's holding up counter magic i feel like versus hydroid crisis it it's very good versus pretty much every other situation so right and you don't have to play a third color you still have a card advantage engine that is very powerful and it's only really worse when your opponent has counter magic up right but but also the the fact that you switched your six drop away from a blue card Mm -hmm to gives you like a lot of consistency your... right and then you get to play blast zone which i agree has found a couple of homes already even yeah. in standard so right yeah blast zone really good in the nexus of fate decks mm-hmm. um just being able to play it with a card that untaps your land so that you can yeah you can actually just you can it's so play fast it, pump it and then blow your opponent's stuff up yep. it's it's really really strong and there are a lot of pretty problematic permanents for the nexus decks yes the new Teferi is really annoying. You just problem. can't operate. Yeah. Because you need to cast everything in your own instep. Right. And Teferi says you just can't do that. Yep. But, you know, what you can do in your instep is bump up your blast zone to three counters and then, and then blow, blow up the Teferi, up. and then you can continue going yep. off. And it's it's really good because blue and green don't have a lot of answers to permanence like this, and you just get to play this land that does the job. Right. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Yep. For sure. Uh, really, you know... You get to cut trim on Blink of an Eye, which was never a particularly great card in the deck. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Blast Zone. And it in running extra lands, like going... I know Lee is up to like 26 lands yeah. in Nexus now. And Blast Zone lets you... You know, is kind of a payoff for doing that. Um, yeah. And the one of the reasons for being at 26 lands is with the addition of Tamiyo, getting to 4 mana on turn 3 with a Gross Spiral or on turn 4 naturally like you just have to get to four mana yeah and once you do your game plan is like set tamio has been 
Tamino is a huge overperformer. It, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It it really is. It, it's it it fits perfectly into the next deck. It does everything that the deck wants to do. It it can buy back your fogs. It can uh, it's so... it it can search for your you know your nexus. It's just like another card that is an engine on the battlefield while you're going off that says, all right, look four cards deep for nexus. And not only does it look four cards deep for nexus, but also gets four cards out of your library permanently. Oh, it just puts them in your graveyard and flips your search, which is yes. You know, yeah. I we had said like you know cool, it puts some cards in the graveyard for search. Mm-hmm. That's been hard to do with the nexus deck. That yeah. that's probably pretty good. It comes up honestly like over half of the games that i've played against nexus yeah um it just it matters a lot yeah and i i've been playing a lot of gruel which i i want to talk about a little bit because i am actually pretty happy with my build of it right now i've been having a lot of fun with it and and winning a fair bit um playing against these nexus decks when they play a tamio and it comes down and they plus for the card that they need and then it's in their hand and probably is a wilderness reclamation and you're, you're just in this, like, no-win situation. Do you attack the Tamiyo and waste six or more damage? Because your guys probably don't line up, add up to exactly six power. Right. Do you attack them and then they untap with a Tamiyo the turn they're casting a Wilderness Reclamation? And then, like, then they have possibly just, like, fogs for the rest of the game with Tamiyo just, like, buying them back. Like, you're just in such a rough spot. And granted, like, my you know, medium creature deck is not the greatest. I can put on a fair amount of pressure, but I have mostly found that, like, if I don't have Cinder Vines, it's really hard for me to close out the game. Mm-hmm. So the just the way that this deck functions now is extremely powerful and extremely consistent. I yeah. The vast majority of games I've played against it, I've just assumed that they would kill me on turn five, and I'm rarely wrong in that assumption. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, it's it's very, very consistent. You know, the, the matchup that I've had against it has been pretty good mm-hmm. um, with Mono Red. Yeah. Uh, just because you don't care quite as much about Fog. Right. You but, can stop caring about it after, like, turn three or so. Right. But all the other just, like, generally aggressive decks, like your Gruul deck and Mono White as mm-hmm. well, Fog feels pretty close to just another time walk. Yeah. Um, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. And this is one of the tough calls I have to make. Right now, my main deck removal suite is a split between... Two, two Lava Coils and two Lightning Strikes. And I don't know if maybe I just want to go all Lightning Strikes in the main deck. Like, Lava Coils have been really useful for removing Rekindling Phoenixes and stuff. Yeah, important cards. Uh, but, boy, targeting Planeswalkers is extra important now. Yeah. And going to the face against the Fog deck. Like, I've definitely had games where I've like had two Lava Coils in my hand and gotten my opponent down to five or so. Right. And if those were Lightning Strikes... Different game. Yep. Um, For sure. But yeah, so Nexus is probably the deck that I'm calling right now is like an early... It's an early frontrunner. Most powerful deck. Yeah. We'll see. Maybe the aggro decks can keep it down, but it has a lot of game against those. Yes. Yeah, Um, for sure. Like, like you're still certainly behind against Mono Red and I assume against White Blue, Mm -hmm. Azorius aggro, but... um, you know, you have more options now, including a card that we gave some short short shrift to. Yeah. But Arboreal Grazer out of the sideboard, I think, <laughs> is an acceptable sideboard card. Yeah. Um, the card is, I think, pretty bad in a vacuum. I, I, I think it's even pretty bad 
in Nexus. Fair. But it, it kind of is like the only card that fulfills that role yeah. as well as it does. Yep. Is it it can accelerate you and it just like puts down a body that blocks for a while. Yep. And you know, I can't I can't stress how annoying it's been to play against cards like that. Like both the um, the one three druid of the cowl yep. and also the O three. It's just sometimes I'm playing and it just like gains my opponent a significant amount of life over the course of several turns. Yep. So. And it does have reach, which is particularly obnoxious because I attack my opponent with dragons. So a lot of times it will yeah 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 block a two power guy once and then chump block a four or five power life. dragon. <laughs> right. It's a lot. Yeah. Um and. That's one of the benefits of going up to, like, 26 lands, is you can bring this in and be very likely to keep making your land drops. Yeah. And Nexus is just a deck that cares about card quality a lot more right. than card quantity. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Um, and, and just... You gotta make your land drops. If ever... If my opponent ever misses a land drop... Yeah. I feel so good about that. Oh, yeah. Kind of no matter what deck I'm playing, um, if they're playing Nexus. Like, the Nexus deck missing a land drop is brutal for the Nexus player. Um, yep, definitely. So... But yeah, the, their good spells cost four. They yeah. win the game after untapping with one of their four drops, generally. Yeah. Right. Which probably means that I do need to waste and however much damage it takes to get that Tamiyo off the board, even if it plussed. But it's just so frustrating. So I've had opponents who have plussed for Root Snare and had a Root Snare in their hand, and they're at like 15, mm-hmm. and now I need to attack this Tamiyo for six. And yeah. then I get a f- I get fogged on my next attack. It's like a double fog. <laughs> it's just like how am I supposed to win this game? I right. do not have a mono red level density of burn sp- right. burn spells in my deck. So yeah, Nexus is definitely powerful, but not the only deck in the format. So I should stop. <laughs> <laughs> right, we definitely have um, other stuff. Yeah, so kind of going back to the the green red shells mm-hmm. with um, Wild Growth Walker and the Explore package. Yeah, there seems to be a pretty wide variety of ways to take that deck, um, and some some pretty big extremes too On that the, we might want to talk about. The the green black shells. The green black shells. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's like your traditional just like general mid range top end is Liliana. Yep. Kind of deal, but also I've seen a couple of I always forget this card's name. The Citadel. Bolus Citadel. The Bolus Citadel. Yeah, uh, shells running around that seem intriguing to me. Honestly, I think that Bolus's Citadel will be a small proportion of the metagame for as long as we have Wild Growth Walker available to do stuff with it. Uh-huh. Um, I played a version of it that was like pretty in on trying to Citadel. Yeah. It was running four Citadels. It was running four Seeker Squares to up the density of the, yeah. the Explore package. Honestly, most of the time that I resolved Citadel, I just won the game. I mean, that's where you want to be for your six drop. If if not that turn, yeah. I would go up to like a hundred life and then pass the turn with a huge board. <laughs> yeah, um, and that beats a lot of decks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Doesn't beat Nexus though. Is like one of the things. Well, yeah, but, that's unfortunate. For but sure. you but do, you can you can like find your sideboard cards or whatever. Right, you can find your sideboard cards, or you can just get lethal because one of the things you can do with it is you can keep playing guys. Your explore guys gain you more life than they cost, especially once you get a second Wild Growth Walker in play. Since you're exploring, you're unlikely to uh, have multiple lands in a row on top of your deck. So it becomes very easy to chain, especially if you have an additional enabler. Like I tried Path of Discovery, but I think it's mostly a clunker, even if you're going pretty hard on the combo. Uh, But what you do is you get a bunch of permanents in play, and then you reveal, you have a Bolus of Citadel as the top card of your library, so you cast it, hold priority, tap your bolus of citadel that's in play, sacrifice ten permanents, 
they lose 10. Oh. The second Citadel comes down. Okay. You keep going off until you have another 10 permanents, and then right. you do the second 10 to them. That's pretty neat. Um, and I did that a lot, actually. Okay. Wow. Sometimes you have to make... You're not totally sure that you have enough non-land permanents left in your deck. You just have to hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, because you get you see all the cards that you yeah, got in your yeah, graveyard yeah. and play, but sometimes right. against a control deck, you might have spent a lot of resources over the course of the game. Yeah. But... Like, it is actually a pretty powerful engine. Mm-hmm. Hard to figure out quite the shell. I've also seen versions that are mostly, like, green-black mid-range, which just have two bolus of citadels in them. I mean, it it, it feels like it, there's not really a lot of cost to that card, you know. There are definitely things that you can do to make your deck a little more oriented towards it. I've seen the Wayfarer Dinosaur... Wayward Sword 2. Wayward, yeah, Wayward Sword. I've seen So I've seen Wayward Sword 2, right. the extra explorer guy that you were talking about. Right. I've but, seen Tomb Robber. Tomb Robber. What does that even do? Two and a black. It has one discard a card, explore. Oh. So yeah, what this yeah, means okay. is if you untap with Citadel, you're basically guaranteed to kill them. Okay. But you do need some amount of mana. Sure. But, you know, even if you, if you have 10 mana and you cast your Citadel and you hit a Tomb Robber, you're almost certainly going to kill them okay that turn because yeah. th- those extra explorers are gonna do it for you yeah, yeah yeah and yeah so i don't know exactly i've also seen like neoform builds because okay. sometimes like you just really need to find your wild growth walker. yeah yeah and wild growth walker is so so important to the deck functioning speaking of neoform when we're done talking about standard <laughs> i have another topic that we're gonna need to hit actually to, oh okay yeah yeah it, it's pretty it's pretty crazy okay well i'll look forward to that yeah <laughs> we already talked about modern so Oof, yeah well <laughs> okay we can go back it's, it's fine. worth i promise it's fine this yeah. is a, this is a kind of a loosey-goosey one since we you yeah. know we get to talk about whatever we want since we were pretty locked in for the last two right yeah other decks that have been very impressive a white weenie still very good yeah the builds right now are kind of the mana curve is hilarious yeah because it's 18 one drops I think it might honestly be correct around zero two drops and then like 10, 10 or 12 three drops. Wow. Okay. The two drops are so much worse than the three drops. Yeah. And you want going one drop, two drop is like a million times worse than going one drop, two one drops. Yeah. I mean, Adonto Vanguard is great in the specific matchups where it's good. Right. If it doesn't get moment of craving. Yeah. I think that probably the primary reason that people play two drops in that deck is because they know that Adonto Vanguard or Tide Taker are just great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there's something spe- you specifically want them yeah. for a thing. But now that Mono Blue seems to be on the decline, mm-hmm. um, I've only played against it once, and it doesn't seem like it's very well positioned. Although, it's it beats up on Nexus pretty well. So, if, you know, if you're planning on playing against yeah. a Nexus. If you want to beat Nexus, yeah, right. no better way to do it. Yeah, Mono Blue, yeah, it could be like a, a secret option for, for this weekend. And we'll see kind of where the metagame falls out. But yeah, I mean, you know, Tithe Taker seems like it's it's just not that strong right now. I I agree. It's it's mostly been Vanguard in the decks that I've liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you are gonna run a two drop, it's probably wrong to run zero two drops. Mm-hmm. But you know, the deck has a problem, which is the three drops are so good. Yeah. Now that we have Gideon Blackblade added to the mix, Gideon is nice. It's real. Yeah. It, like believe the hype i believe i think on this card gideon is nice um i've seen a lot of builds that have just cut the uh, benelish marshall entirely Mm -hmm. and while that does feel strange and i think that that does actually make your matchup against the green mid-range decks worse it does any um any mid-sized creature deck yeah just 
It used to be that Mono White could just play this game where they amassed this massive board state and all of their creatures were 5-5s five because mm-hmm. you had multiple lords in play. Yeah. you know, And that was really kind of like the, the primary game plan. Yep. Gideon doesn't really offer that. Gideon gives you this just like super powerful card on its own mm-hmm. kind of an exchange for that like synergy element right but yeah i you know i was sitting next to zan and just watching him jam games on arena and pretty much every game that looked like pretty eh, all he needed to do was draw gideon and whenever yeah. he did like the game became like pretty under control yeah yeah uh, just gaining some life against the decks where that mattered or just being it's just such a hard threat to remove and it it sits there it's indestructible on your turn so blockers are like pretty bad against it attackers are actually pretty good again my 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 strategy for dealing with gideon is mostly attack it with rekindling phoenix ideally with a domery in play so it just kills it in one hit yeah 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 um but and also that ticking up towards that minus six just like getting a vindicate for free yeah the every time that you just get to vindicate and keep your gideon around feels nasty yeah. and it happens a lot way more often than i expected he takes up to five the yeah. first turn he comes into play takes right. up to six on his first attack yeah and then after that if you need you can cash him in for the exile right. or because you know you have four in your deck so you might as well just like you yeah know, exile one thing play the other one and you whatever. get you get the attack first right because that's not an ability you just yeah. attack and, and gideon's just indestructible on your turn yeah uh, which is actually a keyword that I overlooked initially. I right. was like, oh, he might be kind of vulnerable to removal spells or whatever, but the 4-4, when he's a creature, he just has indestructible. Right, Mortify never kills him. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So that that's nice. Yep. He, he kind of still only just dies to the things that kill re- regular Planeswalkers, like Raskus Contempt and stuff. Yep, and Rekindling Phoenix. And Rekindling Phoenix. <laughs> it's, a ni- it's a nice one. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been playing what's basically... There have been Gruul decks that are like, warriors decks mm-hmm. goblin chain warrior and stuff the build that i have been enjoying playing has gone a pretty different way it's very lanoir elves based really a green red monsters decks okay monsters deck that that leans on rekindling phoenix pretty you're, hard yeah you're you're leaning on your like four and five drops being super powerful yep because you're playing the new sarkin yeah how's so that one been it's very good when you have a domri in play okay which actually works out quite a bit. And and the nice thing is it gives the deck a god draw that is pretty attainable. Just like, I mean, even without the Lanor Elves, Domri into Sarkin, yeah. if you played like a blocker first so they can't just get get your guys, right. um, you are representing so much damage. Yeah. You know, Sarkin is not at its best against decks that have like creatures and removal because like kill the dragon, attack it for two is a pretty bad use of your five mana. <laughs> Uh, right. so, so those are spots where it's been bad. Anytime you resolve it against Esper, though, you're you're feeling like you really are putting the... Pre- That's just Broodmate Dragon. Yep. <laughs> you know? And, and I was worried that Domri would feel like, you know, there's no way to get a card out of this a lot of the time. And maybe running four, like I'm setting myself up for just like drawing do-nothing hands. Yeah. But I just feel like it's really easy to convert him into value a lot of the time yeah. whether it's by turning him into a dragon and also he's adding power right. or just like oh man i drew all these lanor elves but now they're two ones <laughs> yeah and and the fight ability as long as you have enough decent sized creatures in your deck it really does some work so right i've been very happy with four domries in the deck and i don't think i sideboard any out in any matchup yeah so something to 
something to take home. I think Domri is very good. But I don't know that this deck is going to be like a lasting thing. I think it's hard to deal with if you don't really know what's going on. And it's really good against decks that are not particularly tuned because you're just playing a bunch of like monsters and then people misplay against Chandra and don't realize they're going to be dead to it because it minuses seven and then just kills them. So I've liked the deck. I don't know that I can like recommend it to anybody else as I've built it, uh, but I am probably playing it this weekend. I think it's it is a strong choice, and it does play some of the strongest new cards that we've seen. Yeah, for sure. Like of all of the decks that got the most significant increase in power level, right? Maybe it's tough to beat out Tamio, but <laughs> that may be a yeah, just Tamio improves <laughs> right. the deck probably just, more. Just Tamio, but you know, both Domery and Sarkin seem like significant. Yeah. Uh, players. You just get to attack with a lot of dragons, and yeah. Rekindling Phoenix is still one of my favorite cards, and it is very good right now against yes. not Nexus. Right. But, yeah. Um, yeah, pretty much every matchup, it's just they need very specific answers for it. Yep. Um, so, that's strong, for sure. Let's see, what else? The So, some other, like, less popular archetypes that are playing new cards that I've seen a, like a little bit, but not a significant amount. Yeah. There is a what seems to be a pretty strong feather deck it does seem pretty good yeah yeah so this feather deck kind of the key cards that people are playing with feather the new legendary creature that allows you to uh return a instant or sorcery that targeted one of your creatures here to its own hand yep some of the, the like the key cards that people have started playing alongside that are sheltering light mm-hmm. and Reckless Rage. Yes. So Sheltering Light is just a single white make my guy indestructible, scry one. It's like the gods willing of the format, essentially. I like that this list has four of them in it. Yeah. I, I've played against versions of this deck a bunch, and my opponent has played a creature, mm-hmm. and I've untapped, and I've been like, well, I hope this Lava Coil kills this creature. Yeah. If it, and I did, and their creature died, and I won the game. Yeah. If, it, they're, if they had had Feather and Sheltering Lighted in response to my Lava Coil, yeah. I could not have won that game. And that's honestly been my experience playing against the deck, is that <laughs> they have Feather, and then they have a Sheltering Light, and then my life becomes a nightmare. Yeah. Because you have to try to kill things twice, mm-hmm. and it's a four-toughness creature, so, you know, not everything can do that. Yep. Uh, it's really tough. The And the, the other card that I think makes Feather very, very strong in the creature matchups is Reckless Rage. Yeah. So you can use Reckless Rage, target my Feather, target your guy, and then pick it up in my instep. And then you can do it again on your opponent's turn. You can be like, okay, now that the damage has gone off of my Feather... I'm going to Reckless Rage, mm-hmm. deal four damage to your other guy, and then and then pick it up in your end step as well. So you just get to keep on going. It's it's really crazy if it goes unchecked. What else? The, another thing you can do with it is you can kill guys with more than four toughness with it. Um, because you pick it up in your end step and you just cast oh, it Oh, you can again. do it again. Right in your own end step, yeah. for sure. And then you'll get it at the beginning of the next end step. Yeah. So uh, it, it is pretty flexible and pretty powerful. I've definitely been scared playing against this deck. The mm-hmm. thing that beats it absolutely is being able to just remove all their creatures. Yeah. Because there really are not that many. Oh, yeah. No, them. absolutely. For sure. I like that this list has Adanto Vanguard, which is particularly hard to remove, mm-hmm. and Militia Bugler for a little extra value. Yeah. The um, Bugler, I think, is fine in this shell. My issue with it, though, has been that it doesn't have enough hits yeah there's only 15 hits in this deck which i just don't think is i guess if it hit feather i'd be way more into it but yeah it hits all of your like medium important cards Mm -hmm. right and isn't a great target for pump spells 
unless you have a feather in play. Yeah. So I, sure. I get that. The other card I've been pretty impressed with, honestly, in in not only this archetype, but the green-red version of this deck, mm-hmm. essentially, has been the Dreadhorde Arcanist. It's good. Yeah. Every time my opponent plays one, I, I like think about scared. what they could have, and I think, I have to kill this. Yeah, yeah. The decks that are playing this card do play a, you know enough cards that will be very problematic for you if you if you let them attack with it essentially yep. it's 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 really really difficult to deal with this card in in combat situations mm-hmm. because all the cards that they're targeting either make it bigger or are removal spells for your creatures right. <laughs> so you know just being able to buy back a shock is uh you know really strong if you have you know you know, even if you have like an X4 or whatever, you, they can shock it, attack, shock it again. Yep. Really hard to deal with. Or they that. just are doing face damage because they have a bunch of haste in their deck. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, for sure. No, yeah. I mean, which adds a lot of equity to, uh, you know, the control matchups and everything. You yep. can just you can just sling things face. Yep. Um, you know, the card that's like clearly strong, but has really demonstrated to me how much more powerful standard has gotten since <laughs> since Theros standard has been the uh the tenth district legionnaire guy. Yeah. It's this is the hasty uh two mana two two the heroic only card, card in the heroic deck that really has heroic. Yeah, 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 yeah. This card has been fine in my experience. Yeah. It's it never really gets massive like it used to in, in Theros days. I've also um, just shocked a fair number of them. Yeah. Shocking a two drop feels pretty good. It does. It does, for sure. Th- this card I think definitely fits in the deck, mm-hmm. but is it's just not I'm not impressed. Right. You have to run it. There's no way you can build this deck without it. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I, I totally understand that. Yeah. The other deck that... It's pretty similar to this deck, but uh, it is essentially... Uh, I saw a, a green-red version of this deck that mm-hmm. was running just a, a significant amount of like pump spells and everything that uh, seemed to combo pretty well with... It was pretty much going all in on Dreadhorde Arcanist. Right. You don't have um, a lot of other synergies there. Yeah. But it... You I know, guess you have Cranko as well, probably? Yes. I think there was Cranko. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the deck did seem... You know, relatively powerful. Mm-hmm. Was it like a Steel Leaf Champion deck? No, it was okay. actually Naya. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so, so it had a lot of stuff going on. Okay, okay. The okay. card that, that impressed me the most out of that deck was the put two, put a plus one plus one counter on my guy and fight your guy. Um, yes. That card Dom alongside... Ambush. Yeah, Dommer's Ambush. Yeah. Um, that card alongside Dreadhorde Arcanist is it just beating. Yeah. Well, we, yeah. we, we kind of talked well, yeah, about we, we that. Yeah, we did. We called yeah, that You noticed that. For sure. Right. Yeah, a pretty clear synergy from yeah, the new set. It's, you know. it's very, very powerful. People yeah. are trying that out. It seemed to work out pretty well there. I just I just don't know how well these decks are positioned in the format. I yeah. just think that everybody's got a bunch of removal spells or a proactive plan that just doesn't care about what they're doing. Yep. It just doesn't feel like this angle is significantly strong. Right yeah, now. and although you do have plenty of tools with haste and stuff against control decks, yeah. getting... Two creatures killed by Kaya's Wrath is still really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really bad with this deck. Yeah. So, And I mean, you have Sheltering Lights. You have Adanto Vanguards. You don't necessarily get destroyed by Kaya's Wrath every time. But if you ever go... Like, if you play a 10th District Legionnaire on turn two against Esper, like, that has to be the only threat that you have. Like, you can't play another creature. Right. Yeah. Um, and then you're like... Casting Defiant Strikes on a creature when they've got Mortify up and stuff. So, uh, you know. Um, yeah, not great. Yeah. For sure. You you lean really heavily on Sheltering Light in 
in yeah. those matchups. And that is just, it's just not really a place I want to be. Right. I, I've, I've seen initial brews of these lists with like two sheltering lights, and I don't think that can possibly be right. I think this is a four sheltering light deck. Yeah. You just, you just, you're just all in on, on your creatures. Yep. So. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That, that was the archetype I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Some individual cards that I've noticed some things about. I've played against a fair number of black red based decks, maybe with white if they're going like pretty tokeny, but like Judith sort of aggro things. Mm-hmm. Um, Dreadhorde Butcher as an individual card has been pretty powerful and scary. Dreadhorde Butcher is the two drop. Yeah, that the, gets bigger. The black red two drop. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I think if it ever connects, it just feels like you're so far behind against it. Yes. Uh, because you're assuming that they're an aggressive deck with reach and just like getting that value and extra damage out of that one card makes it a really big problem. They've played it and attacked with it and I've had to like trade mana creatures for it and stuff like that at no value. Or if I have two creatures out, it's like really kind of a problem. But the decks that it's in have a lot of cards that just are not powerful enough it seems like i I still i still feel like i want to be high on judith but it might just because there's so much red removal around and it just she gets dealt with at a mana disadvantage i feel like every time she comes into play yeah and that's not a recipe for a powerful card (laughs) right her effect is incredible but i think the answers that you're gonna run into in like 40 30 40 percent of your matches are just too efficient to yeah. be playing this card yeah very very fragile yeah too fragile and and that and might just <laughs> yeah might just end it yeah um i have played against god eternal kefnet as a sideboard card i believe because okay. it, it's been out of decks that like really shouldn't have it in the main deck like yeah. nexus and stuff like that mm-hmm. but it's been just an effective blocker as like a four five flyer that threatens to get some card advantage if yeah. I don't manage to close the game out through right. it quickly. Blocks Phoenix pretty well, so Blocks sure it's Phoenix. against you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Domri, like, solves all of these gnarly situations. Yeah, yeah. It's weird how often I, I'm looking at my board and being like, man, I just want to draw Domri here. Uh, so that extra point of power could be all the difference. It's just, I, I mean, I think that's just the sign of a good card. I've been really, yeah. really happy with that card. Yeah, for sure. Uh I have played against some, played with and against some Phoenix decks. It feels a little behind right now. Um, even with Sahili, which I think is pretty good, mm-hmm. I've definitely been in spots when my opponent casts a Sahili when I wasn't totally sure. Like, should I start devoting resources to this? Will I be able to finish it off if I don't kill it this turn? What what should I do? And I've definitely had opponents go like pretty wide, and then I've had to sit there very scared of, well, if they draw a Crackling Drake... I'm just going to die to it unless I plan for that. Right. But the deck feels a little bit behind right now, just not doing quite as powerful stuff as other people are. And it's just way too slow to compete with a Nexus deck. Right. And yeah, I was pretty impressed. I played against a version of it where my opponent had a couple of copies of Finale of Promise. Yeah. And, you know, we'd trade resources, then they'd cast Finale of Promise... And I, it was not a good situation for which, me to be in. Which color is the finale of Promise? That's the red one, That's the, the red one that one. casts two from your graveyard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it was getting three tokens with Sahili or getting back Phoenixes, or even just, you know, getting them a lot of card selection, it, as a four mana spell, it was very impressive. The fact that one card 
just like even just top decking one card mm. can get all the phoenixes out of your graveyard yeah. is pretty significant. Yeah. So and it's a lot of value. So right. yeah, I I agree. I I've played against it a couple of times. I think it was even in one of the the dreadhorde arcanist builds that Ooh, I played against. Okay. That was kind of like more all in on just like casting a bunch of spells mm-hmm. that I was actually pretty impressed by. It, it was a Dreadhorde Arcanist Phoenix deck. That's that was really pretty cute. spell heavy. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I liked it. I think I thought it was like it's still pretty roughly built, I would guess, yeah. but some promise there for sure. I think we do need to be in a metagame where like getting value is a really important and yeah. really powerful game plan for that yeah. kind of deck to be good. Right. I don't think that that sort of strategy works in the like cutthroat metagame that we're building right now between like nexus mono red and mono white yeah because the deck is at its most powerful when you can be like yeah i'm gonna play a bunch of fours i'm gonna play all these crackling drakes i'm gonna play a couple of finales of promise i'm gonna have time to just like get huge value off of this sahili (laughs) right you know this is stuff that you need a little more time to do and it doesn't work against wilderness reclamation you just need to be a little more proactive the cards aren't just aren't efficient enough you know if we had honestly if we had one more one mana cantrip to run in the deck then i think you would easily keep up with everything else in the format yeah but with just opt it's so hard to like do really powerful early plays that I, i think it's just a little behind on tempo and stuff yep makes sense to me all right so tell me about your neoform stuff Oh man! All right, we got to transition to modern. This is going to be our topic number three: new modern, new modern, new modern. Okay. So not quite old, old modern. There was a deck that I ran up against when I was playing. I was playing through a modern league with this new, uh, new Tron build. I, I put in new Karn, mm-hmm. um, and I was testing out how Karn worked with. Um, oh yeah, we should Mike spend and, and stuff. After we talk about this, we should yeah. also talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I guess I can start off talking about the, the okay. current deck. Okay, end on the most exciting note possible. Um, yes, absolutely. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I was I was like, okay, new Karn. I think that it probably fits pretty well into Tron. Let's try it out. So mm-hmm. I, my sideboard was full of just, like, fun cards that we could get. So <laughs> I, I did try out the bridge that we had mentioned. Yeah. Um, I had the Microsynth Lattice for just the instant win. Right. Um, I don't think you ever run Karn without that yeah, as yeah. an option. It was, it was, it was really nice. Uh-huh. Uh, being able to put like blue white control in a position where they just like had to you know they were out of counter spells or whatever and no pressure and you just you know you slam it and it's over it's just done <laughs> it's just done um, and uh, but anyways the, the I, I think that that deck still needs a lot of tuning and I'm not entirely sure that I found all of the like this the correct sideboard bullets right um, and you said that bridge was an underperformer bridge was definitely an underperformer mm-hmm. there were a couple spots where it like you know, it did buy me the time that I needed. Yeah. Um, so it, may, it might be still worth one sideboard slot, but it's not like a card that you're like, my plan is to seven mana Karn Bridge. Right. That that element just doesn't happen. But too, there are too there, many clunkers in the Tron deck. Yeah. I do like it as a sideboard option though. Mm-hmm. The other the other like pretty sweet cards to find were uh, I put one O stone into the sideboard. Mm-hmm. So it almost felt like I was running seven O stones okay. between the three in the main and the four Karns. Gotcha. Um, but the other thing is that I just don't know how heavy you want to go on the Karns. I played four in my build mm-hmm. because I did dedicate a lot of sideboard slots to having cards that you know you need to find. So it felt kind of weird like going less than four on the Karns. Sure. I mean, I do think if you're dedicating the sideboard slots to make drawing Karn good, you know, that's minimum 
absolute minimum like three slots probably four ish yeah Uh, i had yeah i well so it was kind of weird because i had like three cards that only made sense because of karn yeah and then i also had some cards you could bring in you know i had some other like just like generally good uh artifacts in the sideboard that like are there anyways in a lot of karn decks (laughs) or in a lot of tron decks um, like it was nice to have a graph digger's cage yeah. to find and a ratchet bomb, mm-hmm. um, and you know, some, some other random stuff that I right. can't remember. But you but, can't like have a chalice of the void in your sideboard normally in Tron. Yeah. And you can't even like ever cast that for more than once <laughs> or for more than zero even. Yeah. Or wait. Yeah. You really don't, you really don't want it in play for one because yeah, right. you have so many bubbles in your deck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty, you know. But yeah, I, I do think that it is really hard to come up with a build of this that wants like two Karns yeah. because you're spending sideboard slots in modern on right. those artifacts. So you got to maximize them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. For sure. But anyways, so yes. as I'm going on my excursion of discovering this new Karn deck, which I right now would put as like, it's like fine. Um, I don't yeah. think, I don't know if it's going to immediately take over and be the next new neutron deck but it's or not, whatever it's not bad but it's not oh no it's certainly not bad okay um for sure but so po- I, possible that we need an entirely new tron deck to to fully take advantage of this you know yeah you know, maybe fair. we're not maybe blue tron is the new hotness or, now. or just <laughs> like we're not focusing on big karn like sure. we're not folk or you know something like that but you just you just have to have big karn and tron yeah it, i mean that's like the whole thing well but but you know like the idea is that like Big Karn patches up weird matchups by saying, I'm going to take away your lands. It's, yeah. Maybe Little Karn patches those up by saying, I'm going to take away your spells. Modern decks need a nut draw. Yeah. And that that's what Big Karn offers. Yeah. And then but then like, the that. rest of the game plan could be completely shifted away from... Because right now it's like, you know, Worm Coil Engine, Walking Ballista, Ulamog. Right. Only. Maybe that could be something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Uh, I just tried to jam out everything in there, you know? So I had like two worm coils and two walking blisters. Right. And that's and obviously walking blisters and sideboard. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, right. So some people who like know Tron better than I do are probably going to have to look at this deck and modify it and change it and figure out what the better like structure is. Right. So. But you legitimately won games by casting Karn and oh, yeah. casting, what's it called? Uh, my, my, yeah, Micah and, and, and casting Micah and right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I did have a couple of games that were just Karn, downtick, bridge, downtick, Micah and Flatus. Yep. And that, you know, yep. it's just one card, you know, and Tron, of course. But right. your deck is Tron. So. Yep. Yep. Cool. But anyways, but, so what did you run into? Okay, so it was very exciting for me because <laughs> it's not very often that I play against a modern deck and have literally no idea what's happening. Okay, but. Sure enough. Honestly, I'm looking at this list <laughs> and trying to figure out exactly what's happening. Okay, so the card that you need to understand to digest this deck is Allosaurus Rider. Right. Okay, so Allosaurus Rider says you can exile two green cards from your hand rather than pay this spell's cost. Yep. Allosaurus Rider in and of itself is a seven mana... 1-1 one, one that gets plus 1, plus 1 for each land that you have in play. So this is letting you cheat a very high mana cost creature into play right. very early in the game. Yeah. So with the printing of Neoform, mm-hmm. we now essentially have an additional copy of Eldritch Evolution. Yep. And you can Neoform or Eldritch Evolution your Allosaurus Rider into a Grizzlebrand. Mm-hmm. So now you have a Grizzlebrand in play. Right. Which, and if our entire deck is designed around... 
consistently getting a gristle brand in play yep we should be able to win the game with a gristle brand in play. yes um it turns out just the old-fashioned package of nourishing shoals and big green creatures just lets you draw your whole deck with grizzle brand and allosaurus rider just happens to be a high mana yeah. cost green card allosaurus rider chancellor of the tangle is this another is card that this deck is not playing. the most heavily played in the chancellor cycle but it gets you another seven cards with nourishing shoal yep it's, and gives you a yeah. green mana on turn one yes um, so the, essentially the kill is... Well, this deck has turn one kills, doesn't it? Oh, su- with surprising, I wouldn't say consistency, but it happens a lot. <laughs> it, yeah. Right. It's not um, a, it's not a one. It's actually, I would say it's a very consistent turn three deck. Okay. And it does have like a solid percentage of its draws are turn one kills. I was, I was going to say, how does it fare against hate? And I see the four packs of negation in the sideboard. Not well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually ended up queuing up Death Shadow for a couple. Okay. So the thing that the listeners need to understand is that I play against this deck with Tron and then literally the only deck that I could ever play against on Magic Online was just this deck. And then I was playing this deck. And then I played like three mirrors in a league. It was everywhere wow. on People Moto. really yeah. got wind of this thing. I no, didn't even hear about this deck and people are... No, it, it really took over Moto for a couple of days. Okay. I think that it's over. It's currently Tuesday. It happened on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It was everywhere on Monday on Moto. <laughs> and then... And then um, people started playing Thought Seizes. And then I, I actually just like jammed a couple of leagues with Shadow because I was like, man, Shadow cannot lose to this deck. Yes. All you need is one disruptive piece. Right. One Thought Seize, One Inquisition. One Stubborn Denial. Because if over. you take the Allosaurus Rider. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I guess we've got eight because we have Summoner's Packs. Right. Yeah. It does feel pretty weird to turn one cast Summoner's Pact because you're just going for it, you yep. know? But it happens a good amount of the time. What is Okay, so the combo is we okay. get Gristle Brand in play, yeah. we Nourishing Shoal to help us draw cards, and then we end yep. up casting a Laboratory Maniac? Yes. Okay. Essentially, um, because we have a CMC 15 creature right. that we can pact for, you're pretty consistently drawing your entire deck. Okay. Because in traditional Gristle Brand with Goryeo's Vengeance... They only ever played the 11 CMC creature because it was the best right. through the reach creature. That's not two Gristlebrand yeah. activations. And that, yeah, it's just one and a half, right? Yeah. But this 15 C- CMC creature, it's called... Autochthon Worm. Thank you for knowing mm-hmm. that. Uh, and it's just a 914 Convoke Trample that has this 15 mana. It, you know, it doesn't do literally... It might actually be completely uncastable in this yep. deck, even if all of your permanents are in play. But it serves... Uh, it serves a good purpose because, you know, you you use it to shoal and draw a bunch of cards. Yep. But also, it's just a green card, and you need for a, Rider. You, right, need you need a, a density, density of green cards. Yep. That's why there are a lot of kind of like oddball cards floating around. Um, we have Manamorphose in this deck. Right. And the you know that's why it's kind of fine to have the Chancellor of the Tangles yep. as well. You just like need high density of green cards in your deck. Yeah, so this deck it just completely took over Moto for a couple of days. It was it was it was insane. I don't think that the consistency is there for it to like break modern in any context. Yep. But it's sweet. And yep. I, you know, I had fun playing it for a little bit. Cool. Yeah. What is the fail rate once you get the Gristle Brand in play? Is it, is it pretty low or? If you're at 20, zero, close to zero. Close to zero. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you have like two activations. Yeah. I'd probably bank. say you have like an 8% fail rate. Maybe okay. With, if, if you're at 20. Okay. Um, but. You're not always at 20. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're right. going off on turn three. Right. Like, mm-hmm. if you took 
a phoenix hit for six and they bolted yeah. you, then you're... But the other notable thing about this deck that you shouldn't overlook mm-hmm. is that if you don't have to Summoner's Pact for your Allosaurus Rider, you yeah. just draw it naturally, you just have a Grizzlebrand in play. Yeah. That beats a lot of decks. That's true. So you don't you don't really need to do much more than that. Right. Like against Burn, I played against Burn you just a couple put the times. Just, and all right, Grizzlebrand, yeah, beat it. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Do you still have paths to exile in your sideboard? <laughs> right. You shouldn't, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, I thought this deck was really sweet, and I wanted to talk about it because cool. uh, it. Not a lot of people that I talked to have known about it, but it was literally the only thing that I could play against on Moto for for a while. <laughs> That's which really was funny. pretty crazy. Um, well, I'm excited for the future of modern. Yeah, stuff like this, Con the Great Creator, Modern Horizons, Modern Horizons previews start in like like two weeks or something like that. It's coming up. Yeah. So. I do not think, I don't know if we're going to do a full set review for Modern Horizons. We'll see. We'll see how the set shakes up and that sort of thing. But yep. who, who knows what the plan should be. But for now, I think we should probably call that a show. Yeah, I think that does it for me. Cool. Um, yeah, lots of cool stuff. Definitely looking forward to Richmond. Hopefully, you know, one of us has broken it. Honestly, there's a decent chance I just end up playing Nexus at this thing. I got to make that call by before noon tomorrow when i put my scg order in yeah for nexus this weekend for anybody going to richmond this weekend and aren't really quite sure what to play at nexus seems like uh with the new tameo it got a huge increase it was already a tier one deck mm-hmm. um seems like a pretty safe call for uh yeah being one of the more dominant archetypes and you'll probably lose to some of the people who are prepared for it but it is extremely powerful it does feel that way um, yeah and they, you know even against your like bad matchups like i would say that mono red's a bad matchup mm-hmm. You can still just kill them on turn four or five. You know, sometimes you just growth spiral into yeah, spiral. Tameo or or wilderness reclamation, and then you just kill them when you untap. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So, um, yep. yeah. Yep. All right. Well. Cool. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. If you want to lend us some support, come check out our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/MTGGrandcast. You can also find that on our website, MTGGrandcast.com where you'll also find links to Collins' coaching services. If you want to find us on social media, you can find me at CCR underscore Grindcast, and Collins is also on Twitter, at Collins Mullen. Uh, if you're at Richmond, come say hi, come hang out. We would love to talk to you. And Definitely. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week. Peace.